As you know, we're continuing on in the Gospel of John, and I want you to turn to chapter 2. And again, we're reminded that John's Gospel is a record of his life and the ministry of Christ that focuses on one aspect, his deity, his divinity, and that he is fully God. And John gives his purpose in chapter 20, verse 31. These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and in believing that you may have life in his name. And so now, the New Testament is clear. As well as the Old Testament, but particularly the New Testament, it's clear on the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, his deity, the confirmation that is, that he is God, is declared throughout the entire New Testament. And John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's both God and with God. And there you have a statement confirming the Trinity. All three members of the Trinity being God, and yet they're uniquely separate. He's both with God and yet distinct from God. And this is the wondrous mystery of the Trinity. And we repeatedly find this affirmation of Christ's deity throughout the New Testament. In Matthew 16, he's called the Son of the living God. In John 1, 20, Hebrews chapter 1, he calls himself God himself. In Titus and Peter, he's called our God and Saviour. And in the book of Revelation, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And so, throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, particularly in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3, he is the creator and sustainer of all that he has made, the entire universe. He is the one who forgives sin, and of course, only God can do that. He's the one who raises the dead, and only God can do that, for in him is life. He's the one and only who receives worship. There is worship for none other than the one who is God. And Christ himself commanded that he be worshipped as well as God. And it's, of course, the spirit that enables us to worship him. So summing it up in Colossians 2.9, the Apostle Paul says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So here's the proof text regarding the Christian doctrine of Christ. He is both God and man. He's the Word, the eternal God made flesh. Both 100% God and 100% man. And throughout the Gospel of John, John wants to demonstrate that. And he does it paragraph after paragraph, incident after incident, and claim after claim. Word after word, work after work, all the way through to his culminating reality of the resurrection, which of course is the final validation of his claim to deity. And so today, we're looking at chapter 2, specifically verses 12 to 25. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. 
And in this little passage here, we find three incidents which happen. They're not unanticipated. They're not unplanned. They're divinely orchestrated incidents. And in reality, they're confrontations. Three distinct confrontations. The first one, verses 12 to 17, that's with the temple forces, the masses, tens of thousands gathered in the temple at the Passover. And we've, we've already looked at how Jesus confronted what he saw, the desecration of his father's house, which had been turned into a place of business. He makes a, a small whip and he throws everyone, including all the animals, out of the temple. And this is a, this is a, a very powerful expression of the, of the deity of Jesus Christ, his superhuman power. And there would have been resistance from the crowd in the, in the tens of thousands, multiple tens of thousands. There would have been resistance from the temple police. And the minimum number would have been 300. There would have been probably been even more for the Passover. There would have been, um, in the event that there was any reaction by the crowd, any uh, conflict generated, an immediate invasion by the forces of the Roman garrison that were next door in Fort Antonio, remember? ready to squash any disturbance at a moment's notice. And yet, with all those forces set against one man, not with a weapon of any substance, with a tiny whip, no resistance is recorded. The temple is evacuated in a short period of time. And not only does this demonstrate his divine power, but it creates a picture of us, for us, of our own salvation. Firstly, when he calls us, and we see the number here, representative in volume terms of those drawn uh, here to the temple at Passover. This huge number taken from an even greater Christ, a, a picture of our own fallenness. And in that sense, the temple is a picture of our own unrepentant hearts. And in response, how calmly Christ commands the situation, controls the situation. Everyone's removed without loss or injury. No fanfare, no flashing lights or trumpets. A picture of what he does to us individually as we too are called to recognise who he is as we have the error of our ways pointed out to us and dealt with as we're cleansed. No man could have, could have pulled that off. And this is the first indicator of the data of Jesus in this little set of three. The second one comes in verses 18 to 22 when he's then. Uh, when he's then confronted by the Jewish leaders. First he faces the masses in the temple, and then he faces the Jewish leaders and their queries about why he had the right or thought he had the right to do what he did. And finally, a third confrontation with those who believed in him. So three groups, three different groups, the masses in the temple, the leaders among the Jews, and then those who said they believed in him. And in each confrontation, uh, looking at it collectively for a moment in each uh, of them, there are elements of his deity on display. Okay, so we have this word deity, but what does that comprise in the context of our Saviour, and can we ever really know the extent as to how that can be defined? If you recall, we recovered this in great depth when we studied the attributes of God, so a lot of this will serve as a reminder to that which we're already familiar, we see is divine knowledge. He knows the mind of God. He knows 
the future of his own life. He knows the future actions and behaviours of pe people who don't even know what they're going to do. And at this point, aren't even thinking about it or motivated to do it. He knows the mind of men. He knows every thought in every person's mind simultaneously. His divine knowledge, then, is on display here. His divine holiness is on display. And he's angry over religious corruption. He's zealous for the appropriate worship of God, and he's passionate for reverence. He rejects superficial faith and hypocrisy. And his divine sovereignty, then, is on display. And as God, he's Lord over the temple. He has authority over the temple, authority over religion, and authority over worship. He has authority over death. He has authority over human lives and destiny. And all of that is here in, short, in this short section. Now, we covered the first confrontation last time, so we're not going to do that again. But it triggers a question. Jesus goes in and just ejects everybody out of the temple at the most focused, condensed period of Jewish worship, right as they're about to offer the Passover lambs. And their focus was on doing what they'd been prescribed to do and traditionally had done every year at this time, and so they're fully intent on its accomplishment. And all of this force, all of this human power, the accumulated masses, and all uh, of the rest that I mentioned that Jesus sends everybody out, including all of the animals, and brings everything to an immediate, abrupt halt. And his deity is on display at that point because he demonstrates the ability to do something that no mere man could do. But as we come to the second two, it's not so much his power that's on display as his omniscience. And so, as we look into number two and into number three, omniscience becomes the focus and when we use the word omniscient, we mean that he knows everything. He knows everything. Omni means everything. Science is for knowledge. He has what we would describe as all-inclusive knowledge. That's what the word means. He knows what pe people can know, and he knows what they can't know. He knew what people discover. And he knew it without discovering it. He knows everything there is to know. He knows the future. He knows the present. He knows what's happening. He knows what's visible. And he knows what's invisible. And this we see on display in Jesus here. Full testimony to his deity. Just try and grasp this thought for a second. God alone knows everything. God alone knows the past the present and the future. And God alone knows every thought, every word, every action, and the collective effect of all thoughts, all words, and all actions. And only God knows, according to 1 Corinthians 4, the intent of the heart. God will judge every man when the motives and intentions of the heart are made manifest. Because God knows them. And nothing is hidden from him. He not only knows his creation's history, including all of man's history, but he knows all that's behind the history, the motivations that have created the history. He knows everything that's happened perfectly, everything that's happening perfectly, and everything that will happen before it happens perfectly. 
And in fact, he not only knows all of this, but he controls it all. He controls it. And we therefore, there, we therefore define this as his sovereignty. And God alone is sovereign. God alone doesn't learn anything. Nobody teaches God anything. He knows everything that can be known. He knows all of the incalculable motives, all of the effects. And in a broad view that we can only try and make sense of, he's known them forever. He knows them perfectly. He knows them eternally. He doesn't gain any knowledge and he doesn't lose any knowledge. His presence and power control absolutely everything exactly the way they need to be controlled to bring about his purpose and his glory because that's the goal of everything. In his wonderful book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this about God's knowledge. He says, God knows all that can be known and this he knows all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires, every uttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. Because God knows all things perfectly. He knows no thing better than any other thing, but knows all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He's never surprised. He's never amazed. He never wonders about anything, nor does he seek information or ask questions. God is self-existent and self-existent knowledge. He's self-contained and self-contained knowledge and knows what no creature can ever know. He knows himself perfectly. And only the infinite can have infinite knowledge of himself. This is God. And Jesus expresses it in really simple terms that we can picture and even a child can understand. God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows details like every time a sparrow hops. And all of that, you remember, the Lord spoke about in his sermon on the mount, which we find reference for in, in Matthew and also in Luke 12. He knows everything. If you go back to the Old Testament, we find this is often indicated. And in the 16th chapter of Jeremiah and the 17th verse, God in this context is telling the Jewish people that they're going to go into captivity. They're going to fall under judgment. And a terrible judgment is going to come on them as a severe punishment. In fact, earlier in the chapter, he says in verse 13, So I will throw you out of this land and into a land neither you nor your ancestors have known. And there you will serve other gods day and night. For I will show you no favour. I'm going to throw you out of this land. And finally, in the end, in the future, you'll be regathered. And verse 17 God, when he regathers Israel, will have full knowledge. My eyes are on all their ways. Speaking of his people, they're not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin, because they have defiled my land with their lifeless forms of their vile images, and I've filled my inheritance with their detestable idols. After that, the Lord will then, it says in verse 19, regather the people. And in verse 21, make them know him. And to know that my name is the Lord. And I have no problem in bringing judgment on you because I know every one of your iniquities. They are not concealed from my eyes. 
I know every detail there is to know about you. And one day in the future, you will also know me. Jeremiah 23 is another one. In fact, the Bible says that those of us who are saved will know just as we are known. In Jeremiah 23, verse 23, and in Jeremiah and Isaiah, God compares himself a lot to false gods, idols, non-existent gods made of inanimate stone. So he says, am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God who is far off? In other words, he's talking about his omnipresence. He's both near and far. Can a man, can a man hide himself in places so that he's not seen, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? God is saying, I'm not like your God's frozen in a temple somewhere. I'm everywhere in the universe. I see everything and I know everything. No one can escape my knowledge. Psalm 139 is, is a wonderful insight into the omniscience and omnipresence of God. Psalm 139, verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And what he's saying is that it's not some kind of knowledge that's from afar. You know me, and you know me in the sense that you actually have your hand upon me. You monitor me in that very intimate and personal way. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as of light to you. There is no escaping God. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And consequently, he knows everything, fully aware of everything in his universe, in the vastness of his eternal presence. And in Isaiah 40 to 46, Isaiah again does something like Jeremiah and compares God in more uh, of a detailed way with the false idols and the foolishness of making an idol and then worshipping it. In Isaiah 40, for example, God introduces himself as the one who measured the waters, verse 12, and marked off the heavens and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. And then in verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counsellor has informed him? Who has taught God anything? Who gave God any information? No one did. He knows everything about creation, everything about the elements, heavens, everything about the earth, everything about the balance of the earth, the rotation of the earth. God doesn't need to know science, nor psychology. Nobody taught him anything at all. Who gave him understanding? Verse 14, 
And it's a rhetorical question which expects a no one for an answer. Who taught him about morality and justice? Who Do you not know, verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the world? It is he who sits on the circle of the earth. Verse 25. To whom will you liken me? What God am I like? Like none. Nobody gives me information. Nobody gives me knowledge. I'm not limited. I'm not isolated. I'm not located in one place. Chapter 41, verse 21. The Lord says, bring your argument forward. Bring forward your gods. Let them have a test. Let them bring forth and declare to us what's going to take place and tell the future. If you are a true God, tell the future that we may consider them and know the outcome. Announce to us what's coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards that we may know that you are God's. If you can't tell the future, you're not God. Because only God can tell the future, the one true God. In Isaiah 45, 19, I haven't spoken in the secret, in some dark land. I not only know the future, I declare things that are right. I declare things that are right. Down in verse 21, he goes back to the future. Declare and set forth your case. If your gods are true gods, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Why? Because I know the future. I know all things. Chapter 46, verse 9. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. So God says I can tell the future, and anyone who claims to be God then has to be able to tell the future. So back to our scripture. 18 to 22. That's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what he does. And this is the evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ, taken from his ability to tell the future. Not just his own future, but the future of those who don't even know their future. Verse 18. The Jews then responded to him. After he'd done what he'd done to the temple, they were infuriated. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this, they declare. Who do you think you are? That's the question. Who do you think you are? A question which they'll frequently ask Jesus because he takes power and authority over things that they think belong to them. And so in response to his assault on the corruption of the temple, which, by the way, is a preview of an even greater assault on uh, which will come at his cru crucifixion when the veil of the temple is ripped from top to bottom and the Holy of Holies is exposed. And therefore, the, the whole sacrificial system comes to an end. And then 40 years later, the Romans come and tear down the temple so that there's not one stone left on another. 
They destroyed the entire city of Jerusalem and bring to an end that great city and that great temple, the final end. And even now a ruin. This is the starting point. This is his first attack on the temple. At the end of his ministry, he does it again. And the temple is dying, this time by God, as he rips the veil. And finally, it's attacked 40 years later by the Romans as they come and totally destroy it. And so they say, who do you think you are? You've got to prove to us that you have authority. And no, he's claiming to be from God because he says, you've turned my father's house into a business. Or as he says later at the end of his ministry, into a den of robbers. He's claiming to be the agent of God. This is my father's house and you've desecrated the place. Of course, it was John the Baptist who'd already declared throughout Judea that he was the Lamb of God. So word is circulating about him, and as such, they demand a sign. If you're acting for God, if you're protecting God, and God is your Father, show us a sign. Some sign to indicate that you have valid authority for doing this. By the way, the Jews when you see that in the Gospel of John, the Jews, it's a term that John uses to speak of his enemies, Jesus' enemies, not necessarily the whole population of Israel, but the collective um, enemies that were constantly attacking him. And so they, the religious leaders made up the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the religious elite are immediately on him. And their initial observations, they seem valid to them. Jesus is not a priest, he's not a Levite, he has no rights inside the temple. Those belong to the, the priests and the Sanhedrin. That was their opinion. They belong to those who were in the priestly line. And Jesus had no role in the religion of Israel. He holds no official position. He has no rights to do anything. Nothing that had been granted to him by any powers in Israel. And so to them, it's an outrage. He believes they've desecrated his father's temple. They believe that Jesus, is de a man with no authority, has desecrated their temple. And by the way, there's no repentance on their part. There's no sorrow. There's no bowing down and saying, you're right, we desecrated the place. We're in error. What you've identified of us is true. We need to repent. We need to seek forgiveness. We need to be reconciled to God. But they don't have any interest in that because they don't love God. They don't love God at all. In fact, the truth is, they hate God. They hate the true God and the true way of salvation by grace and faith, which are already ordained throughout the entire Old Testament. They love themselves. They love money. You win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. They demand then one thing, that Jesus give them some signs so that they can validate his authority to do this. And while you could say that hadn't he performed miracles? Because the answer is yes. And he's about to do more because down in verse 23 it says, during the feast they were observing his signs which he was doing. He was doing signs and they were visible. And it begs the question, what did they mean? Show us a sign. What was it that they wanted to see? 
during the time of the Passover and the subsequent feast, and immediately after, so that's a week and another week, and the day surrounding it, Jesus is indeed doing miracles that are interpreted to mean signs. It wasn't simply out of his compassion and his love that he did these things. Remember, he's on a divine timetable. And everything that he does is measured and conforming to the end goal of demonstrating his deity. That you might believe that he is the Christ. And that in believing, have life in his name. But they were never totally convinced by the signs that he did. Remember their hard hearts? They're looking for alternative signs. When he healed people, when he cast out demons on earth, they saw them as insufficient miracles. What was it then that they were looking for? Well, if you go back a little bit and remember your study uh, in the Gospels, you remember that they wanted a sign, not on earth, but a sign from heaven. They wanted a sign from heaven. They wanted some astronomical sign. They wanted something to happen in the sky. They wanted a divine, heavenly display or, or something that was clearly non-human. And to them, he was just a man. He looked like a man in every sense. He didn't have a halo. He didn't have a heavenly expression on his face. At least, not one that they could observe, unlike his appearance at his transfiguration. He just looked like a man, and the things that he was doing were, in a sense, earthly things which dealt with people's illnesses and possessions, or in the providing of food. And as such, the miracles that he was doing, they just didn't impress him. They weren't astronomical enough, and they suppressed them to a level that could be categorised as unconvincing. And of course, the tragedy for them then is that they have no idea of God's plan. That he's building to a final culmination of all that had been prophesied. The final fulfilment of the redemptive history to that point. And it would be three years before everything that had been written would be completed. Concluding with the crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. They wanted a sign from heaven. Perhaps the Lord's name painted on the clouds. And as we'll discover, Jesus gives them the perfect prophetic verbal answer to their demands. And ironically, he gives them exactly what it is they wanted in the end anyway. And if you want to know what that was, you'll need to be here next week. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, what a picture you give to us. What a picture you, you give to us, Lord, of firstly your power and then the darkness of our unrepentant hearts. Father, the doubt that we have and in that doubt the fears as to whether or not what we perceive to be the truth is the truth and yet father you you allow for all of that in your great love for us because you embrace us in such a way that you gently draw us into a greater knowledge of you that you enlighten us in such a way that we can understand and return that love back to you. Father, we are so very grateful for everything you do for us, that you command every breath that comes out of our body. Such is your power. 
that you know every thought in our mind before we think it because you have placed it there. You are our guide, our sovereign Lord, all-powerful. You are not a God of stone, a God of limitation, because in you there is limitless power, eternal power, eternal sustaining power. Father, thank you for choosing to reveal yourself to us. Help us, Lord, to, to speak of your wonders to those people that we know don't have you as their Lord and Saviour. Father, bless us as we leave this place now. Allow us to, to walk just those few inches taller than when we walked in here in our faith that we might give you all the glory, Lord. For you alone, as we have heard, deserve our praise and glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.